You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This week, HPR brought you a story about how archaeologists have dated a site on Molokai as one of the earliest known habitations in the Hawaiian Islands. Their newest discovery also changes what was previously presumed about the location of Hawaii's earliest settlements. HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactol joins us from Molokai this morning to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and I would like to officially uh, welcome you on board uh, with the HPR news team. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm well, thrilled to be here. Yes, and your story was, was a pretty exciting one to read. So, so tell us about this site. Where is it? Sure. So this is a site on Molokai that's along the south central shoreline. So it's um, right uh, along Kamehameha, the fifth highway. It's right along the road. You can see it when you drive by. And archaeologist Marshall Weisler is actually a professor at the University of Queensland in New Zealand. So he comes to Molokai to do studies. He's been doing that for decades, really, and uh, working all over the Pacific Islands. And he originally excavated um, this particular site, the Cavella Mound, um, back in 1981. So it's not new research. But at that time, when he carbon dated it, he found that it was about 500 years old. And since then, uh, the, the radiocarbon dating technology, as we know, and methods um, have seen great improvements. And so he recently decided to redate some of those samples. I think he did about 19 or 20. And he was really, really surprised to find out that the site wasn't 500 years old. It was actually 900 years old. And that puts it right about 11, the 1100s, early 1200s. And, and that is one of the earliest known habitation sites across the Hawaiian Islands. It's its pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, that's amazing. So, uh, yeah, w- what else did his research find? So one of the interesting things, there are a lot of burial sites in this area, but he said this isn't a burial mound. It's a, it's a habitation mound. It's where people lived, and it showed a lot of what people ate and what people were doing and how they cooked their food and the species that were in the area at that time. He talked a lot about how this isn't just an indicator of the people, but also the environment, which has actually changed a lot since that time. So um, he talked about it being a time capsule, which is a really neat idea with each layer kind of telling its own story. And he described it as layers of a birthday cake. So it's a time capsule of people and the environmental history of that immediate area. And because the site dates about 800 years ago and was continuously occupied, we have eight centuries of a time capsule telling us what people were doing on the landscape, how the landscape was changing. Really, it's a fantastic site. I love that image of the birthday cake layers. I thought that was fun, too. It's a a very non-scientific but also understandable way to explain it. And one of the things that he uh, found particularly interesting in this discovery is that previously, a lot of the early early settlements across the Pacific were thought to have been found on the windward location. So those windward areas are tend to be lush valleys, um, much more thought to be sort of welcoming for these early agricultural Polynesians. And what this particular Cavella site told him and other archaeologists kind of reframing where they believe um, these early sites may be was that this was on the leeward side of Molokai. And it was, uh, you know, it's a much drier site, but in fact, um, 
there was a lot of water, a lot more water uh, in the area at that time. And he, you know, he fully acknowledged that there may be other sites that we just haven't found yet. So there's every reason to suspect that there's some earlier sites in Wailau and there's earlier sites throughout the Hawaiian Islands. But we simply don't have many sites that date to this very early period, even though thousands of archaeological sites have been recorded. Hundreds of archaeological sites have been excavated and dated. But when you consider that really large sample, a handful of sites actually date to this early first one or two centuries of colonization. So these are very rare sites, not just in Hawaii, but any island group you go to throughout Polynesia, there's very few sites that date to this early time. So he talked about some of the other early sites that he's referring to um, being on Maui. Um, He mentioned one in Waimanalo. And uh, Wailau Valley is actually on the north shore of Molokai. There's a couple of really lush valleys over there, Wailau and Pelikunu, um, stretching even around to Hulava, more on the east end of the island. And so he said that there may be early sites in those areas that just haven't been uh, explored yet by archaeologists. So did he come across anything you know, else that was interesting out there? Uh, well, he... Some of the work that he's done has been exploring the chemistry of rocks, and he described them like a fingerprint that can be traced to specific quarries. So he said he had this really chicken skin moment when he discovered uh, an ads rock that he traced to originating actually from Kaho'olawe, was found more than 2,000 miles away in French Polynesia, and uh, that stemmed from his work as well on Molokai. So there's a lot of really fascinating things that he's explored. Yeah, amazing, amazing finds. But thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Catherine Cluett Pactall. She covers Maui Nui for the station. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa Olehua Onihau Okawa Oahu Omolokai Olana Omau Okaholabe Ohavai Today we're testing how much you know about an athlete who came to embody the ethos and performance of the University of Hawaii Rainbow Wahine. This basketball player uh, was an outstanding student-athlete from California and had numerous offers but immediately committed to UH after her recruiting trip. I didn't think twice, she told the Honolulu Star Bulletin, and during her collegiate career she was honored as a two-time All-American and led the Rainbow Wahine to two NCAA tournaments. She averaged over 21 points and 12 rebounds a game and remains uh, the UH's all-time leading scorer for both men and women with over 2,700 points. After college, she played in Europe for seven years, and then in 1997, she was the first-round draft pick for the Sacramento Monarchs, one of the original eight WNBA franchises. 
So, for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of this athlete who served as a role model and inspiration for girls everywhere. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Journalist Virginia Soul Smith argues we really need to reframe how we think about kids and fatness. Bodies have always come in different shapes and sizes. And we need to stop pathologizing that because when we pathologize that, kids internalize the idea that their body is a problem to be solved. More on her new book, Fat Talk, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Skyline is the name rail officials chose to brand the most expensive public works project in Hawaii history. What started out costing a few million dollars decades ago mushroomed into more than $10 billion, and we have to wait many more years to get a fully operational system. So how's that for a public relations nightmare? You try branding that. Well, we sat down with the city's Department of Transportation Services Deputy Director, John Nowucci, to talk about the challenging process and what they heard about what not to call it. To holo or not to holo, just within the hour, city officials formally unveiled the new name of the mass transit system, Skyline, because of the views and the official symbol going forward, the Manuoku, Honolulu's official bird, a comeback story of a threatened urban seabird. We sat down for a candid conversation about why the Manuoku was chosen. Here's Nuuchi. We have been trying to brand this rail system for a very long time. I mean, we've had contracts, we've had two branding consultants that we worked with who both were excellent. But I think, you know, if you think about it, we can forget where we were four years ago or even three years ago, right? In terms of where, how people considered heart and the fact that we had a little bit of crisis in heart at the same time we had the global pandemic going on. So if you can imagine us trying to go out to the public for, you know, focus groups in a time of pandemic when, you know, you couldn't even get together, right? And we, we conducted phone focus groups and trying to get people to say, what should we call this rail? Turn, to, uh, turn into a very ne- negative exercise of, well, you know, you shouldn't call it. And, you know, thinking back on it, I shouldn't have been surprised. Like people were in no mood to talk about anything positive related to rail a few years ago. I mean, there was just too much else going on and too much of people's headspace that nobody would have ventured anything positive about rail at that time. And so we, we kind of went through those and I don't I don't know if you want to hear about 
um, what people said we shouldn't call rail and maybe the surprise that we didn't name it something Hawaiian. So initially, we started off with about 300 names, and this was very similar to how we branded the Holo card. When we looked at what was out there, we actually even took stuff from our previous work on Holo, thinking that it would apply to rail. And the three things that came out from the public very strongly, very strongly, is that one, don't call it the train. And that kind of took us by surprise because we have the bus and we have the handy van. And I wasn't, I mean, I'm not, I didn't want to predetermine anything, but I thought a lot of people would just assume, hey, just call it the train, go take the train, you know, um, take a bus. But everybody said that we needed to try harder than that. And I thought that was kind of interesting at the time. They looked at this as a large infrastructure project and we couldn't get a pass. We just easily just call it the train. People also said we shouldn't refer to it as rail anymore. And the funniest thing that they came up with is, you know, rail sounds negative now. When you hear rail in the media, it's a negative thing. And so they didn't want the rail system to carry that with them. And a lot of people they came up with, they said, you know what rail rhymes with? Fail. And, you know, we heard them loud and clear. And it wasn't only one person that said that. And they also thought that at the time, the perception of heart was not a good one. So they thought that the name heart should go away also. So three strong English names or three possible English names kind of thrown out the door. So we went and focused a little bit more on the Hawaiian names that we had in, in the hopper. And we had, for example, I'll give you the five that we went through. We had Hoku, which for star, and we felt that, you know, the, the stars is more of the realm of the Polynesian voyaging society. And we felt that, you know, it maybe wasn't a good fit for our rail system. So we moved on to Ilima, which I really liked because a lot of times we do not celebrate the, the 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 symbols of our island and the ilima is a symbol of the island of oahu and to that end i thought you know it would be a nice celebratory commemoration but when we looked at ilima too i think it is very hard for people to pronounce and we would have to in a very nerdy way of looking at it we would always have to use a serif font otherwise you wouldn't people who weren't familiar with the word would never know if it was two l's or two you know how it was spelled and we really wanted to make sure nobody pronounced it Ilima and or, or Jima, <laughs> as you might in Spanish. So we decided not to use Ilima. Um, but the Ilima to me was, was good because we had another name called Kui. And with Kui, I really liked that imagery of being able to string together different neighborhoods of our island, like Kui as you would string a lei, a flower lei. And the stations would be like the flowers that we are stringing together, all the communities that we're connecting. But if you look deeper into the, the meaning of kui, it has, it's very close to the word kui, which would mean to strike as in an accident or um, to hit and, or to smite. And I think we needed to get away from that for uh, a large vehicle that's carrying people. So we also went to moku, which was actually one of the contenders for when we did holo. Um, Moku would symbol, symbolize the, the different island sections, the large land sections that we were uniting, and also short for the whole island of Oahu. And again, we wanted to commemorate the island of Oahu instead of focusing on the city and county of Honolulu. And um, the last one we looked at was Ola. Um, Ola was good because it was a, a new lifestyle. Like, Rail would op like, present an opportunity for us to have different ways of living after you know we introduced this 
transportation innovation. When we looked around, it was actually pretty hard to um, to trademark that name, and so we kind of backed away from that also. So we ended up with Skyline, and Skyline was one of the the, the choices that we had. But the more we sat with it, the more we realized that it adequately and aptly described our system. What's unique about our system, as opposed to many other light rail systems and light uh, metro systems on the continent and elsewhere, is that it is a line in the sky. We are fully elevated except at one point at Leeward Community College, and it is going to be part of Honolulu Skyline as a transportation mode. So the more we sat with it, it, it sounded really good, and it sounded luxurious, it sounded premium. And to tie it back, the symbol of Skyline is going to be the Manuoku. And it is, you know, the Manuoku, I think, is, is super interesting because it, it has such a good story. And, you know, if we just go to its base level, right, um, in the Hawaiian Dictionary of Mary Kovena Pukui and Samuel Elbert, Mary Kovena Pukui is recognized as the preeminent scholar of Hawaiian knowledge. And her definition of Manuoku is a white turn, a fairy turn, a love turn. Goes on to say, a small friendly seabird. So we found it significant that she included friendly as part of the definition of Manuoku, that she would ascribe such a description, almost like an opinion, to a dictionary definition of the friendly characteristic. You know, it's meaningful that she included that in the dictionary, and it really underscores the Manuoku's ability to live amongst us in our urban Environment. Manuoku yeah. is Honolulu's bird. Absolutely. Since 2007, it's been the, the bird, official bird of the city and county of Honolulu. And that's something actually we discovered after we decided to ascribe Manuoku as part of the brand for rail. We have been talking to DTS John Nouchi about Honolulu Rail's new name and symbol. Stick around. We'll continue our conversation with him right after the break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Rick Hansen, author of Making Great Relationships. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about relating better with all the people in your life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, offering virtual classes including art, film, history, and gardening with start dates through June 30th. More by searching Osher Hawaii.
If you're just joining us, the city has just announced that the symbol of its new skyline mass transit system is, drumroll please, the Manuoku, the white city seabird that graces our treetops. We have been talking to DTS Deputy Director John Nauchi about the challenge of branding a system that for decades have been saddled with negativity because it is way over budget and way behind schedule. And we're all paying a dear price for a system that we hope gets finished sooner than later. Nochi shares the Mo'olelo, the story of how the white fairy turn came to be, the mascot, if you will, of the train that rhymes with pain and rail that rhymes with fail. Ah, the warm and fuzzy challenge. Here's Nochi. It goes back to January. We, DTS, hosted an international conference for transit leaders with the American Public Transportation Association, or APTA, in January. And I will say that the conference planners really did their homework. And they, they insisted, after reading a lot about modern tourism and destination management and just the general impacts of tourism in Hawaii, that they wanted their attendees to experience authentic culture activities. So that was a little challenging for us. Like, what do we do with a bunch of people from all over the continent? And so we thought about it for a bit. And then we arranged for them to work in Kapapalo'i o Kanewai, which is a taro patch in Manoa connected to the University of Hawaii. And so we arranged the day, a work day there. And upon our arrival there, after we did chant protocol, our group got seated in front of the halal there and immediately discovered a nesting baby monooku who was only about six feet above us, who was very, very curious about us. He kind of looked and looked back and forth at us. And we learned then from our host, Makahiapo Cashman and his hui at Kanewai, the story of the monooku, how they were endangered once and have now become with really thoughtful protections. You see the the blue ribbons around the trees that indicate that, you know, there's a monoku present in the tree, how they are now elevated to uh, protected status here. And we really appreciated hearing how the monoku maintained a presence in the most urban environments here on Oahu and how its presence is becoming more widespread in Honolulu and beyond from East Honolulu and kind of starting to encircle Pu'uloa or Pearl Harbor. So that the Manawaku not only survives, but it thrives in our urban city. It's kind of that nod to its resilience that the Manawaku choose to live with us in our city, not the countryside or the rainforest. And that kind of started something in my head. So this story of the Manawaku reestablishing itself in a changed environment and adapting, it started to echo back to me that significance of the same goals that we had for rail on this island. Like we have a small footprint of rail that we would establish that our first initial footprint, then grow our rail system in a sustainable way to thrive and expand and, you know, increase our footprint, just like the Manuoku have started to become more widespread on this island. So it's funny how things happen, right? We learned how, how the mating pairs, Malama, and take care of their keiki. And right on cue, the two parents came back to feed the baby. And it was just quite an experience for not only our guests, but for our local team. So, of course, everybody thought we had arranged for this to happen, but, you know, sometimes coincidence and that kind of ho'ailona are not far apart when you're led to make decisions. So that's where that seed got planted about Skyline and Manuoku. So it's serendipity. Total serendipity. The the head of the AFTA organization said, ah, you know, worst comes to worst. He knew that we were kind of in this naming and branding quandary. But I had a talk story session with them a day later, and they were still kind of in awe at what they had experienced. And... He suggested, well, if you can't come up with anything, you could call it Manu Rail. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. Yeah. So 
But, you know, when we sat back and discussed and talked down this experience, right, we dug a little deeper and learned about that significance of Manawoku in Native Hawaiian voyaging and that this friendly bird would be a sign of nearby land or a predictor of a successful voyage. And we also learned about the official status of the official bird of the city and county of Honolulu. All the pieces started to fall into place, right? So ascribing it to the rail system, we hope to navigate our riders to the places that they know and love and perhaps discover new places that they don't know yet. We found a mele composed by Kainani Kahunaele and Halealoha Ayao, and it has two lines in it, and it's Hemele no Papahana Mokuakea, so, you know, broadly for Papahana Mokuakea. And it has two lines in there that are super significant. Um, it's Manuoku Ikaahui, Healaka'i Nakalahui. So, what that means is the Manuoku that are clustered together are leaders for the people. And that just mirrored, we took some of this information before we made this final branding decision and consulted with different parts of the Native Hawaiian community. And we heard a couple of things that really just stood out in our heads. So this idea of Manuoku Ikaahui, Manuoku that are clustered together. Someone that we spoke to said, hey, maybe you think about all the people that ride this are the Manuoku flying to do their jobs, to bring sustenance to their families. So, you know, everybody clustered together riding rail. And a leader for the people. Another person, Kumuolelo Hawaii at Honolulu Community College said, hey, maybe it's just that simple. You see the bird, follow it home. And that really stuck with us. Those two sentiments really, I, th- I think at that point, we knew that this would be a fit and that we could, we would work with this. So this is so, a very thoughtful process. And at the end of the day, Manooku it is. Uh, but you, I'm sure you're going to get the critics saying, well, yeah, this Manooku is really an albatross around our neck, you know, because of the price tag. Uh, and people are different not going to be. Different bird. Yeah, and I'm not going to be happy that there's, you know, no restrooms. Uh, uh, yeah, you probably won't hear the end of that. But I do worry that the Manooku may take to this line and, and uh, deposit an egg here and there and get in the way. Mm-hmm. We we thought about that too, you know. That could happen. But mm-hmm. if it happens, we'll have to, you know, even as we expand our line, that is something we're going to have to be extra careful about. Not that we wouldn't have been careful about it in the first place, but we absolutely have to protect this bird if we are going to have its image and likeness all over our trains and in, in as part of our brand. And so I think that affords some extra level of protection. And that was a candid conversation we had with John Ouchi, Deputy Director of the City's Transportation Services Department. This morning, city officials formally proclaimed the symbol of Honolulu's mass rail system, the Manuoku. It is Honolulu's official bird, and the friendly white fairy turn will grace new holo cards going forward. <laughs> Uh-oh. About those uh-oh sticks. One little civil beats reality check with us today delves into an ethics dilemma. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. And that's O-Okina-O, right? Not <laughs> O-H hyphen O-H. Yes. But I, I thought the same thing. Uh, <laughs> I this couldn't from, No, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. And, and I imagine the temptation with our headlines over here. But this is a... <laughs> A story from Marina Riker, who covers uh, Maui County for us. She's got a million things on her plate today, and I'm happy to fill in. It is indeed about um, OO, which is uh, digging sticks, Hawaiian 
digging sticks. And she opens with two new Maui County Council members. It's Tamara Paulton and Nohe uh, Uhadshins. And they were at a, a recent groundbreaking in West Maui. And you know how how um, developers and officials and others, they always pose for those photos. Yes. Holding, you know, they got a shovel and, and each of them ceremoniously takes a, a pile of dirt. Uh, you see no more than that. And, and, and you know, breaks ground. It, it happens all the time uh, here in Hawaii. It happens everywhere. Well, in this particular case, uh, those digging sticks, those o'o, were made of koa, which, you know, as we know, is a very valuable wood uh, from Hawaii. So uh, one of the council members, uh, Tamara Paulton, thought, you know, looks like it's at least 50 bucks for this thing. I'm, I'm going to check on this because maybe I need to report it to the Maui Ethics Board, Board of Ethics, rather. Well, guess what? It turns out the OO were assessed to be about $400. And, and both council members were then told right away uh, from the Board of Ethics there in Maui County, you can't take these. You cannot accept them. You, you have to give them back. Um, by law, I should say with Maui County, you actually do have to file a financial disclosure if a gift is $50 and above. Well, you know, good for these members to ask. Mm, I mean, how many yeah. times have we <laughs> gone to these ceremonies, right? And I never once, you know, thought about what happens to these sticks afterwards. I didn't know they were given away as gifts. Yeah, there was apparently sometimes that is the case. Other times it is not. But we do know that it happens uh, in many cases, in Marina's own story, there's a photograph of, of officials on Maui County, at least 15 of them breaking ground on a well. Uh, and then she actually cites some other specific examples, the the, the target on Maui, uh, even the Honolulu Rail Project, uh, which, of course, is getting ready to open soon. And so it's not always clear uh, whether people walk take them home. It's not always clear whether they are made of koa, but the concern on the part of the Board of Ethics there on Maui is perception, that that this is a gift, that uh, we're giving you something and that somehow this might be influencing your decisions. We should point out that this development, new housing, I think it's at least a thousand units, it's partially subsidized by millions of dollars uh, from the county of Maui. And so that's that's public money going there. I'm not sure what the extent is of the private investment, but this is not an uncommon thing. So uh, erring on the side of caution, you got to watch out for the appearance that you're taking. Well, I mean, a $400 piece of koa is no small item. Yes, and, you know, I do love that picture that you used uh, in, the, uh, in, uh, in the article, you know, from rail, you know, with the... Uh, uh, Former Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa uh, and uh, right, Senator. Another, yes, yeah, exactly. Danoy, Danakaka. Yeah, and there, more recently, there's photos there on Maui. I think I saw Senator Gil Keith Agaron, and uh, one of those photos, of course, he represents Wailuku and Kahului, and that's important. But I think under underscoring um, all of this is that the reality that we just had two former state legislators and two former Maui County officials all in the last year or two plead guilty uh, to accepting bribes um, from some pretty, um, how should we say it, special interest uh, organizations, individuals uh, that want to have legislation uh, passed or killed in their favor. This is not, these are not 
you know, what we call gifts of aloha, right? These, this is not a box of malasadas. Mm-hmm. This is not a box of manapua. Um, and even that stuff is coming under scrutiny as well. I think Brenton Awal, the new Republican state senator, says, I'm not even going to take that just because it looks like, well, it kind of looks like you're trying to buy someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, all very interesting. And so, you know, what do they do? Do they just not give them out as gifts? Do they use a, a cheaper wood? But, you know, as we're talking here, I seem to recall now seeing one of these old sticks in, in somebody's office, right? As decoration. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, yeah, well, I have a feeling after this story, uh, and it's doing very well on the site today, you may, you may find some people returning their uh-oh uh, back, to, back to who they got it from. And remember, we also had that Foley Commission come out with all those recommendations to improve ethics. And let's just say that this is going to be a continuing issue. People are spending, are being more and more careful about what it looks like because of that perception of corruption. Yes, yeah, good story. But thank you so much, Chad. Sure enough. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read Marina Riker's story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. If you like wordplay and huge, dirty guitar riffs that sound like no one else, Queens of the Stone Age are back with their first new album in six years called In Time's New Roman. Frontman Josh Homme joins me to discuss self-producing the album and the influence of Hoka on his music. Yes, Hoka. That's on the next World Cafe. Beginning tonight at 8, following Left, Right, and Center. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Time now to tally the final score with the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier in the show, we asked you about a legendary rainbow wahine athlete who came from California to the University of Hawaii in 1986. She started every game uh, as a freshman and was recognized and admired for her quiet confidence, pure athleticism, and hard work. She was inducted into the UH Sports Circle of Honor and is the only Rainbow Wahine to have her number retired, number 32. She's recognized not only for her status as a two-time All-American, but as one of the UH's greatest student athletes, one who doubled majored in business and political science. So who was this athlete who showed young girls that they could chase their hoop dreams and who underscored the importance of the Patsy Takimoto Minx Title IX, the Equality in Education Act. It was Judy Mosley. Mosley retired in 1997 after playing professionally in Europe and in the WNBA. She passed away from cancer in 2013 at the age of 45. We had no winners today, but remember that name, Judy Mosley. 
That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Many will be celebrating Father's Day this Sunday, including a local family, the driving force behind the new restaurant in Waikiki called Omi. The eatery is a tribute to the abundance of the sea, something owner and chef Vikram Garg is very familiar with. He was born in India and grew up on islands in the Bay of Bengal. He worked at restaurants in Dubai, the British Virgin Islands, and Iceland before moving to Hawaii with his wife and two children 15 years ago. Uh, Chef Vikram and his oldest daughter, uh, Ia, made a trip to our studio this week to talk with the conversation's Russell Subiano about culinary influences and what it's like growing up with a professional chef for a father. How did some of those places kind of influence your cooking and, and the dishes that you offered? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most interesting thing is I don't even think about it. It comes through because if you look, live at a certain place for a certain amount of time, you tend to enjoy the cuisine, the people, the culture, and slowly you start incorporating in your food without realizing that you're doing it. So when I start writing a menu, for example, when I'm writing Umi menu, for example, and I go back and look at what I wrote, I say, oh my God, this is what I learned in Dubai, this is what I learned in Iceland, this is what I learned in France. So it just sticks with your brain, in your head, you know. And subconsciously, you start to accumulate the knowledge, the experience, the taste, and it just becomes a global menu by default. And you brought your daughter with you this morning, Ia. And you and your sister have both lived here your entire lives. What's it been like growing up and watching your dad achieve what he has over the last 15 years? I think it's been pretty interesting because we moved here and he was working for Holly Kalani. So he was working for someone. But just seeing him open his first restaurant and then now his second one, it's been pretty cool. And definitely I liked seeing him open the first one for the second one. I was at college, which was a bit unfortunate. And I kind of I wish I was here for that part because the excitement, the build up to like the opening of the restaurant is really spectacular. Seeing him and what he's built and the journey he's been on, does that inspire you? Well, I don't want to go into cooking at all or even the hotel industry, but it did inspire me. I want to be a doctor, so it inspired me to open my own practice just because seeing like the difference between him working for a company and owning his own company and being able to do what he wants to do and run it the way he wants, there's a clear difference, and I like the idea of opening my own practice or having my own business. Yeah, if you become a surgeon, you guys could probably share knife skills or something, right? Exactly. <laughs> Use his knives. <laughs> the, the difference would be that she's working on life. Right. Life <laughs> <laughs> people, and I'm working on dead animals. Right. <laughs> uh, Chef Vikram, from what I've read, your restaurant is a all hands on deck with your family working the front of the house. And family is a big deal here. You could say it's probably the most important thing in Hawaii. How does having your family participate in the operation of your restaurant impact its operation? You know, number one, I'm blessed that my wife, Abilasha, she has a hotel background. She went to the hotel school. But for the last 19 years, 20 years, she's been making sure these girls do well. I've got two daughters. The other one is not here today. And um, she spent a lot of time. Her passion was always to be involved in hospitality business. Mm -hmm. So when I opened this project, I said to her, I said, you know what? 
this is the right time for you. The girls, one girl is gone. The other is going to go soon to college. And for you to come and start helping out in the business, seeing where it is. Mm-hmm. And more so important, it's always good for someone in the family to know what's happening mm-hmm. at work. Yeah. That gives me a freedom to travel. And especially my girls, when they are in town, I think hospitality is a part of every life, every profession. Right? You're a doctor or engineer or a business person you entertain. And knowing the business is always a positive. How to wine, how to dine, how do you make reservations. So that's one of my big thing with my daughters, both of them, to learn that business. Right? Whether it's about the wines, it's about the food, it's about the system. And so it, it'll help them in whatever career they choose eventually. Yeah. How do you feel about the idea of family being so important in Hawaii? How did that impact you growing up, and how does that affect you now? Um, I think moving to the mainland for school, there was a clear difference in like values on the mainland. Something as simple as students don't call their friends' parents like auntie, uncle, or Mr. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Like it's by first name, and I that was so shocking to me going onto the mainland. Like I think Hawaii culture is similar to Asian culture, and like us being Asian, it was easy to acclimate here and like assimilate. But yeah, I like the importance of family in yeah. Hawaii for sure. When you do work at the restaurant, what's your favorite part about it? What, what do you enjoy doing the most? So initially, I started working at TBD when I was, I think, 14 or 15. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, I don't want to go into hotels. I don't want to go into hospitality. Like, I shouldn't be doing this. I want to work at a doctor's office. And senior year, like when I was writing college applications and just reflecting back on my high school experience, I really would say that working at the restaurant was one of the most beneficial things I could have done. It teaches you so many like interpersonal skills, people skills, just thinking on the spot, just how to deal with like difficult people. And so I would recommend it to everyone. Like I still tell my friends, I'm like, you should work at a restaurant. Chef, your daughters are interested in some different things. How much of your passion for the culinary arts, how much of your cooking skill has passed on to them? Do you see them whip up food or, or make something that, that they're really good at? Yeah, so as I said, you know, when you're around something for a long time, right, you slowly grasp it. So uh, Mother's Day, when I was in Hawaii, I mean, she just left last year, and she would make sure she gets up and makes a full brunch on the Mother's Day. And I would be pleasantly surprised of what she can whip up, you know. And it was it is not only just uh, cooking of something, but the presentation, how they present it, what the cutlery, proper napkins and everything else. You can see that uh, subconsciously they've learned over the years, whether it's uh, working in the restaurant or dining together, because we always took both the daughters right from being baby to the restaurants and we traveled with them around the globe. So that was really helpful. I can see that. Even with my younger daughter, she'll just come out of the blue in the middle of the night and say, I'm baking a cake, and she'll make something fantastic. Chef, I read that your restaurant is a culinary tribute to the ocean and how it nourishes and sustains life. You're from an archipelago of islands in the Indian Ocean in between India and Thailand. You grew up near the sea, and now you live in a place where ocean is critical to culture and daily life. Is there anything that you learned about the ocean that you wish the world at large would know? Yeah, I mean, the first biggest part of my life was on an island, which is an ocean. 32 years I've been living around ocean. Actually, 35 years, because two years in between I was in the Caribbean. So I was on the beach, literally, you know. And um, somehow ocean pulls me. There's a, there's a power of the ocean which 
which I gravitate towards. And what I've learned from the ocean is there's so much out there which we don't know. It's undiscovered. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sustainable. There's so much of food which we get out of there. And enjoying that, just not the swim, the warm water, also the food which comes from there, which is one of my favorites, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Growing up in India, the flora and fauna is very similar to Hawaii with just a little bit of a cultural difference. Everything else is pretty much the same, like Kalo and the tuna. Both the oceans are known for it, or the, both the islands are known for it. By default, I gravitate towards seafood, and thus I decided to open an o- ocean-centric restaurant, Umi, and it also gives tribute to the islands, the ocean, and mother. Umi also means mother. One thing I'm kind of curious about, when you live in different parts of the world, in different bodies of water, What's kind of the difference in the seafood that's available, say, for instance, in the Indian Ocean or around the Caribbean or here in Hawaii? I mean, the species of the fish, the species of the seafood varies a little yeah. bit. For example, when I lived in the Caribbean, the spiny lobsters were very popular. They're the warm water lobsters. The temperature of the water is a little higher than you see in Hawaii or in, the, or in any other part of the world. I think it's the species which is different, but the basic seafood is seafood. You know, like, for example, in India, when I grew up in Andaman Islands, we used to get tuna, and the same tuna or the ahi is the same out here, and they have pretty similar taste. I guess the oceans are connected, and they are the ones who connect the world, connect the land, mm-hmm. and so there's no passport or boundaries for the seafood to travel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad is a carpenter, and when I was growing up, people just assumed that my dad built our house I think most people would think that having a professional chef as a father means that you eat fancy gourmet meals all the time. What's your favorite dish that your dad makes? Okay, the favorite dish that my dad makes is a fancy dish. It would either have to be his morel sauce. I prefer it on bread, but he puts it on steak. Or it would be his truffle pasta. And the pasta is very simple. It's just parmesan, butter, like salt, maybe pepper. But he just grates white truffle on top of it, and it's so good. What's the morel sauce? Describe that. The morel sauce is morel mushrooms, and then it's in a cream sauce. I don't know exactly what goes in it. I've never actually seen him make it, but that's one of my favorite sauces. Is there anything that your dad makes that people would be surprised to know that he's really good at? Like, does he make like a mean grilled cheese or something like that? Well, he does make truffle grilled cheese, but I'm not a fan of that. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I think people would be surprised at the amount of stews he makes. Like, I feel like that's an easy dish to make. A lot of people just make it at home for dinner, but he makes it so often. Even last night we ate stew. (laughs) Like, a lot of different countries stew, but a stew nonetheless. (laughs) Yeah, stew is is a big deal here. So, yeah, if you make stew, that's already an an island favorite here. (laughs) That sounds good. Yeah, I think it's it's comfort, right? Yeah. Sue is something which you will gravitate towards. You can make it gourmet or you can make it very casual, you know? Vikram, what does it mean to you as a father and a restaurateur to create a restaurant like this that will become part of your legacy? See, for me, when I think about food, the most important thing is why we eat food, right? It's got to be nourishing. It's got to be, you know, healthy. And it's got to make people smile. We all eat Whatever the occasion is, we eat. Whether we're celebrating a life, someone is born, or there's a birthday, food is a big part of mankind, right? Which will never go away for our existence. And for me, it's uh, after so many years, it's to create something which I can say that with pride that I've created this brand along with my family, and I'll keep it going till my body allows. Mm-hmm. 
And after that, it's up to the kids what they want to do with it or, or our team. We have a great team of chefs and managers at the restaurant. And eventually, when after I'm gone, someone will take over and continue the legacy. I would like it to be not a trendy restaurant. It should be a trendsetter and uh, should live long. Your restaurant will be celebrating Father's Day in style. Can you share what will be on the menu on Father's Day? That's one of the most difficult time because everybody says fathers want steak and we're a seafood restaurant. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do a surf and turf menu. I said, let's let's add some little bit of a fat on there, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we're starting with the classic oysters, which are baked with the, mm-hmm. and crusting with hamokwa mushrooms on top and bacon. And then we are going to go on to seafood stew. As I was talking about stew, we said right. seafood stew. So it's got mussels, lobster, clams, the local fish, which is stewed slightly in a seafood broth. And it's served with a large toast, so a little bit of a, a pork fat on top of a toast. Or you have a choice of a pepper steak. We age our steak in koji with a black pepper soy sauce. And on top of that, we have katsubushi to give it a little smokiness and the, the ocean. You know, with Father's Day coming up, what do you think would make a good gift for fathers? Well, he was mentioning how I make brunch for Mother's Day. I'd usually do that for Father's Day, too. Yeah. I'll usually go out of my comfort zone and try to make something a little more fancier to satisfy his taste. <laughs> so I'll probably do brunch. I think something handmade is always like better if it comes from the heart. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think I want a morel sauce this time. <laughs> <laughs> a morel sauce it'll be. <laughs> awesome. I'll give you the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming into the station. I really enjoyed talking story with both of you. Thank you Thank so much you. for having us. Oh, that all sounds delicious. I'm hungry. That was Chef Vikram Garg and his daughter, Ia, talking with the Conversations of Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to Chef Vikram's new restaurant, Umi, on the conversation page of our website later today. And happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And that is it for this Aloha Friday. Monday is Juneteenth, a federal holiday, but we'll still be here. Call the Talkback line. Leave us your comments, 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of our website or wherever you find your podcasts. Our producers are Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. John DeMello created our Backyard Quiz Oli. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Thank you.